on Textbooked. It's nostalgia made into politics. It's make America great again. This is not the conservatism we normally associate with conservative parties. This is reactionaryism. This is an, an attempt to turn back the clock. And the cocktail of Confederate values that we don't call Confederate values today, but they're kept alive by things like the Confederate flag, by statues, by names, and, and by the heroism that, that is still propagandized and promoted by people who believe this stuff. You're listening to Untextbooked. This is a podcast that gives students and young people the power to follow our curiosity. There's so many stories throughout the world. Reading even one topic or one story can provide me a deeper dive into who I truly am and where I come from. We can better understand the trajectory we're moving on as both a nation and a society. We talk to leading journalists, historians, writers, changemakers, you name it. It's pressing, it's concerning, it was shocking. And through that, we take the history out of the textbook. I'm Gabe Hostin. And I'm Aria Barquesa. And you're listening to Untextbooked. On January 6th, 2021, hundreds of rioters stormed the U.S. Capitol. Their goal? Overturning the results of the 2020 election. In the process, they vandalized and looted the building and harmed police officers. Many were injured, and in the aftermath of the attack, five lost their lives. While aspects of the attack were largely unprecedented, some were also uncomfortably familiar. We don't have to look too far to find remnants of the Civil War. Every election season, partisan polarization pits red states and blue states against one another. Over 700 statues of Confederate soldiers remain standing, despite mass efforts to remove them. And alt-right and proud boys continue to spread propaganda about an impending race war, often taken to the streets in the name of freedom of speech. While the Civil War might have ended many years ago, the spirit of the Confederacy is still alive today. And the fight for a more perfect Union never quite did end. Just a few months after the Union Army's victory, white supremacist resistance re-emerged even stronger than before. This conflict remains largely unresolved as tension continues to echo through history. On this episode of Untextbooked, Aria Barquesa interviews Dr. Jeremy Suri, author of Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. Dr. Suri argues that almost immediately after the Civil War ended, opposition to the Union's Army's victory prevented Abraham Lincoln's vision of a genuinely united country from actually taking root. Today, we take a closer look at how competing visions of democracy, race, and freedom continue to impact U.S. citizens over 150 years later. Welcome to a textbook, Professor Surrey. It's a true pleasure having you here. And for all the listeners who are really curious about how your book provides amazing insight and relevant insight into how the Civil War really never ended. And so to begin, you write in your introduction about how you were inspired to write this book because of the horrific attacks that we all witnessed on January 6, 2021. You described how many of these rioters were bearing Confederate flags, and you provided a background of the modern meetings behind the Confederate flag and its heritage, and how those ideals have transcended beyond the traditional southern borders of the original Confederate states. One of these ideals you mentioned was this perceived resistance from federal control and its alleged tyranny towards local rule. 
So can you outline to the listeners about how these values took hold from the end of the Civil War to this horrific, pivotal day, January 6th? Absolutely. And Aria, thank you so much for their really kind introduction. And it's, it's so nice to have the chance to talk to you and to connect with your listeners as well. I wrote this book, as you said, because uh, I've been shaken over the last five to six years, even though I'm a historian, I've been shaken at how unstable precarious and violent our democracy is in the United States. And I should have known better, right? Because I'm a historian. But these moments sent me back to the archives, which is what we do when we're historians and we want to understand something. And I think what's so evident when you go back to these years after the last official battles of the Civil War, the battles at Antietam and Gettysburg and Appomattox, what one finds is that the values of the Confederacy live on. And I think these values that are associated with the Confederate flag, they have three elements to them. One is the belief that only certain citizens should matter, only certain people should get to choose who leads our society, that there should be a bounded electorate. And we still see that today. Claims of fraud are really not claims about fraud in an election. What they really are are claims that the wrong people voted. And that's why we don't have full voting protections that we should have in our society. A second element is the use of violence, intimidation the belief that it is okay to bully people, that at some level communities should take justice into their own hands. We see that with the Ku Klux Klan and the Red Shirts and various other groups that form paramilitary groups after the Appomattox and other battles and after Lee signs surrender at Appomattox. And we see it today, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, this person who broke into Nancy Pelosi's house. It's a sense of justice by mob justice by posse, vigilante violence. And that's that's a value that's associated with masculinity and heroism then and now in many, many parts of the country. And then the third element, and the one that actually I think is, is most nefarious of all, in addition to exclusions and violence, is the value of not allowing things to change. It's not conservatism, it's a reactionary sense that the best was in the past. It's nostalgia made into politics. It's make America great again. This is not Burkean conservatism. This is not the conservatism we normally associate with conservative parties. This is reactionaryism. This is an an attempt to turn back the clock. And those three elements then, that's the cocktail of Confederate values that we don't call Confederate values today, but they're kept alive by things like the Confederate flag, by statues, by names, and by the heroism that is still propagandized and promoted by people who believe this stuff. I I was struck doing the research for this book and how much has been written that's pro-Confederate in many ways, even in recent years. And that's part of the point, that it's still alive and well. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the interesting angles that the readers can get from your book is actually how you were mentioning about masculinity. I think if we could talk a little bit about that, for example, with John Wilkes Booth and how he was this heroic, masculine guy that was avenging the Confederacy. And the way that he was branded, it really lives on, I think, in how these Confederate values and rebellion resistance have just continued on and on. And to where even those values lived on into the rioters that were in the Capitol that day on January 6th. And how do you think we could get away from this? How do you think we could get away from this John Wilkes Booth heroic branding? Such a good question. 
It's such a good question. I love that question because it's both historical and it's cultural at the same time, right? And and so uh, first, it, it needs to be said that we underrate, at least I underrated, even though I'm a historian, I underrated the degree to which John Wilkes Booth, after assassinating Lincoln, was seen as a hero by so many people. Again, this is why research is really, really exciting. I spent a lot of time, and my son helped me too, reading old newspapers from the 1870s. It's such a great thing to do, to go back and get a sense of the time, what people were reading, what they were saying. And thanks to the Library of Congress, there's an amazing database now of newspapers from the 19th century and other periods you can get just online. And what struck me was just what you said so well in your question, Arya, that the ways in which John Wilkes Booth, after this horrific, horrible act, the first presidential assassination, is seen as he wanted to be seen by so many, by millions of Americans, as the hero slaying the tyrant, as the man who's a martyr for his larger country. It resonates with what you read with suicide terrorists 100 years later. And it's very much associated with the masculinity of this, right? He was a real man who stood up against the weak union that had the advantage of all these tools and toys. But he stood up, he put his body in front, and there's a way in which he's treated. And the act itself, not just the the shooting of Lincoln, but then the jump onto stage and the the fleeing. And there's a way in which the physicality of this and the strength of this and the determination is emphasized in contrast to what is seen as a Union army that's now filled with African-Americans with former slaves. That's not masculine and that's not appropriate and, and that's somehow industrialized rather than the good, strong man who's doing what he's doing. That's so deep. It seems simple, but it's so deep in the ways in which these politics are discussed. And I think we have to recognize that that kind of male violence and heroism and martyrdom is at the center of American politics for a long, long time. I mean, how can you look at Donald Trump and the crazy cult around Trump without seeing that? Or the way people are now talking about Ron DeSantis, how often is it said, you know, this person is tough, I was watching CNN the other night, and they said, yeah, Ron DeSantis, he can throw a punch. Why is that a positive thing? Why does that have anything to do with politics, with being governor of a state? But yet that said prima facie and left out there as if everyone should understand that it's exactly the same thing. It's the same kind of association of male strength, male physicality with political efficacy. And I think that's so much of what we've been experiencing on both sides of the Atlantic in the last three to four years as people feel their masculinity is threatened by changes they can't control. The man who carried the biggest Confederate flag into the Capitol, Kevin C. Fried, he was a white factory worker who lost his job and was in and out of jobs for about a decade. And he didn't feel like he had any say in his life, any control, any strength in his life. He brought his son to watch him break into the Capitol because he was showing that he was a tough guy, that he would stand up. So how do we get this out of our politics? It's so deep. That's the easy part, I guess, is seeing it once you open your eyes, how deep it is in our politics, both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, as I said, but particularly in the United States. I think the way to get it out, first of all, is to recognize it, to diagnose it. What is our job as historians? Our job is to diagnose. We are the medical doctors of society. We diagnose what has happened and point it out to people so they can see it because you can't fix it till you see it. And I try to do that in the book, Ulysses Grant, who's a failed president, but is often trying to do the right things by creating a justice department, 
that's designed in many ways to work against everything I described before. There's no Justice Department until Ulysses grants presidency. And it's created, I think, to work against this male violence, terroristic behavior that's so built into our politics. So we have to diagnose the problem, and then we have to build alternative ways of talking, alternative ways of conducting politics. Yes, exactly. And actually, one of the the two really amazing things that you mentioned in your answer was this physical lens through the body and how the body was used to enact change or reactionary change. That also kind of corresponds to some of the traditional Confederate values of how the land, the land, the physical land is so important. But that old vision of that the traditional old Southern elites had that has translated or has continued on in the minds of these rebels, of these Confederate rebels and those Confederate values that live on. They now live today in those same rebels that were at the Capitol. Who would you say the vision of this American democracy is for? Is it an illusion? What are the motivations behind this very limited, bounded democracy? So it's a really important topic because I think one of our jobs as historians is to empathize even with horrible people, right? Our role is not to sympathize or apologize. And please, no one should read any of this discussion as an apology. But we do have to understand, right? You can't diagnose and deal with the problem until you understand it. And so you're getting at this this core issue. What is it that really motivates this limited view of democracy, this white supremacist view of democracy, this male chauvinist view of democracy that's so embedded in this history and what we're seeing today among some actors? And I think what's motivated in it or what's behind it is a fear of losing status. I'm a deep believer and follower in the work of Richard Hofstetter, who did a lot of writing about these issues after World War II. He wrote about McCarthyism, for example, and and paranoia and anti-intellectualism in the U.S. And one of the points that Hofstadter made was that people who have been in power for a long time, and power doesn't necessarily mean wealth, often it does, but it often just means control of the community, say, in what others do. Status is your position relative to others. It's very, very hard when they feel they're losing their position, when they feel challenged, and that they will break many of the rules to preserve their status, even if it hurts them too. Because this was Hofstadter's insight coming from Max Weber, that if I'm at the top of the mountain and I'm sliding down the mountain and I can't stop myself from sliding, I can still make myself feel better if I make certain that no one else gets above me. So I'm sliding down. And I'm just going to make sure you're lower on the mountain, that you stay below me, rather than allowing you to go above me and help me a little bit. And that's exactly what's happening in the South and in many other parts of the country in the 1870s. And it's what's happening today in so many of our societies. People who have had established position for a long time because they own land, because they have a family name, because they own the local hardware store, because they're close to the leader of their religious community, whatever it is. They feel challenged by new people. In the 1870s, it's the four million former slaves who now become nominally citizens, and it's the massive immigration waves that occur in this period. And they challenge the status of established white community leaders, and they're fighting back. And so their bounded democracy aria is a way of saying, yes, we want democracy, but for the right people so we can maintain our status. I think it's the same thing today. What is one of the most common motivators of the people I talk about in the book, and we 
unfortunately are seeing things about every day. Those who went to the Capitol and tried to lead an insurrection, those who deny elections. What's their motivating factor? This replacement theory, that they're going to be replaced by other people who are coming into our society who are somehow going to take away what they have. It's the change in our society. A lot of it is socioeconomic that motivates fear, hatred, and this kind of anti-democratic behavior that we see in the 1870s and that we see today. Exactly. I really appreciate your insight because it partly explains why racial politics is so prevalent in the United States over class politics. Because even within the white race in the United States, there is this class hierarchy where even the traditional Southern elites consolidated so much of the wealth that not even or subsistence farmer white families in West Virginia or in even up like the deep south were not able to have access to but it was delusionally ignored over this perceived competition with non-white citizens now i want to talk about with you another really dark pattern that's happened in our democracy that has endured time to time and that is voter suppression and intimidation just in the aftermath of the 2020 election, which was we know is just the freest and fairest election so far in American history, and that that was also the 1872 election at that point as well too. Did you think this would have happened for the 2022 midterms? And then do you think this could also happen in 2024? I think one of the most important points you're touching on so well is that the United States is a democracy that develops with very strong protections for free speech, for example, but very few protections for voting. And that's not a mistake. That's because it was founded from the very beginning with the presumption that only certain people are going to vote, only certain people should vote. And then when we have this second American revolution, this transformation of American society during the Civil War, there's a conscious decision, and I talk about this in the book, of course, and you're referring to it very well. You know, we don't want many leaders of the Republican Party, the good guys, the Northern Republicans, they don't want all people to have voting rights because they're concerned that will undermine them as well. Famously, John Sherman, senator from Ohio, very powerful senator, brother of William Tecumseh Sherman, says, I want black people to vote in Mississippi, but not to vote in Ohio, and not to vote in my state, because they didn't vote for me in my state. <laughs> right? And so we don't develop proper voting protections. The 15th Amendment simply says you cannot deny someone the right to vote based on race, but it leaves the door open to deny voting in all kinds of other ways. 19th Amendment in 1920 says you can't deny voting based on sex, but leaves the door open for all kinds of other ways. 26th Amendment, 1971, prohibits limiting someone's voting if they're above 18 based on age, or if they're 18 and above based on age, uh, but it leaves the door open for all kinds of other things. We become remarkably creative across our states in finding reasons to get to deny people the right to vote, literacy tests, poll taxes, registration requirements. In Texas today, you have to register to vote a month in advance. You can go buy a gun the day of, but you have to register to vote a month in advance. In many parts of the U.S., felons, even felons who have served their time, don't get to vote. So you could be arrested on a drug charge, serve two to three years, and then 20 years later, you still can't vote. This is not a mistake. It's not a bug in the system. It's actually how the system is designed. It's a deep flaw in our democracy. And boy, is it ironic because we go to Germany and Japan after World War II and we insist that they create voting rights that are stronger than our own, right? <laughs> so this is not just a pattern. I'd say it's in the programming. It's in the programming of our system, as is the protection for violent actors. We have very few legal mechanisms for actually imprisoning and prosecuting particularly powerful people who use violence, whereas we have many mechanisms 
for prosecuting non-powerful people who sell drugs. So the drug penalties are much higher than the penalties for people organizing a posse to go and break into a building and to intimidate or photograph people while they're going to work, to vote and things of that sort. Over time, these problems have been more or less evident depending upon the actions of people at the moment, but they're latent in our system. And every system has this. It doesn't make us a horrible system, but it's why we need historians to identify these problems in the system design, and then we need the political will to do something about it. So here's a clear consequence of this. I think knowing this history, everyone listening today, everyone who reads my book, I hope, will get out and say, we need a constitutional amendment to protect the right to vote. We should have the same language that we have for the First Amendment, where everyone gets to vote full stop if they're 18, if we want to make 18. Full stop. And there should be no way any state can put any restrictions on that in the way they can't put restrictions on free speech. We can use this history to actually make change. And I think there's some very obvious places here where we can have systemic reform to address just what you said, Aria, these long-term patterns within our democracy. Exactly. And I think also another institution that is also, you addressed at the end of your book was about gerrymandering and how that also goes down to representation and also the power of really one's vote. And how, whether it was in the 1872 election where we have such high voter turnout among former slaves, and then even now that was gone for the next century because of laws that were solidifying Southern control politically over the geographic space of the South. And that way, one of them was gerrymandering. And you're right about how gerrymandering is something that does need to stop in order to create a more efficient democracy. How do you think we go about that? So what we need to do is obvious, right? We don't have committees of pilots who tell us the plane is safe. We actually have an FAA, a Federal Aviation Administration of experts, some of whom might have been pilots, but are not the pilot of the plane or the owner of the airline, who tell us our planes are safe, and that's why our planes don't fall out of the sky. And the same thing is true for how we set up our districts. When we do our decennial census, we should have experts, people who are demographers, sociologists, and others, define and decide where the district line should be based on creating the most competitive representative districts. Instead, what we have is a system where the people in office say, I'm going to draw the lines as best I can to keep myself in office. Maybe another analogy, it's like letting the students grade themselves. (laughs) There's a reason why that would be a problem. And we've allowed this process to go on. It's a problem from the very beginning of our republic, but it gets much worse after 1865 because now there are explicit efforts to control different populations and make sure those populations, even if they're occupying and should have representation in a particular area, to prevent them from actually getting that representation. So the stakes are larger, gerrymandering is used much more, and then with the advent of computer technology in the last 30 to 40 years, now it's become a mechanism for really micro-targeting groups. But we can fix this. We just should not let the fox guard the henhouse. We should not allow those who are going to benefit from the system to actually be the ones drawing the lines. And we have experiments with this that have worked. The city I live in, Austin, Texas, we have an expert committee every 10 years that redefines the boundaries of the city for electing representatives and We should do that. We just need the political will to do that. Yes. And also, I guess, one of the last and probably the most puzzling institution that I want to talk about in our democracy is the Electoral College. Like, I mean, 
it doesn't even exist in most places in the world. We hear about it every four years. We don't really understand what it is. At least I don't. I don't understand how it elects presidents. And the more you delve into it, the more you see just how undemocratic it really can be. And you understand the history that came about. And we learn about the history of why the Electoral College was founded by the founding fathers and or the constitution makers when we were in history class. But the way that it's been exploited so much now in the last hundred years is something that really makes it really questions just how legitimate it is and how it should be run, how it should be deciding who our presidency is. For example, in the 1876 election, we almost didn't even have a president. And even both Hayes and it's fair, we're both like, I don't expect to be president. And they wrote about it in their diaries. And so given these obvious cracks in this undemocratic system, what would you suggest as the alternative? Well, I think, again, here, the solution is pretty obvious. We just have to recognize the historical reasons and then develop the political will. The Electoral College, as you say, it, it, no one understands it because it's the strangest of all institutions. I think you're absolutely right, Arya. It doesn't even really exist there's no place you can't apply to the Electoral College, right? It's not a college. And the people who are in the Electoral College are not there permanently, right? It's a group created, a body created, a fiction created, really, to identify a certain number of votes that are then associated with the votes of the people in different states to determine who gets to be president. It's a layer, a mythical layer, that aggregates votes and disaggregates those votes to choose who is president. The Electoral College was created because at the founding, the founders didn't have a way, a mechanism for electing a president. They were afraid each big state would put forth their favorite son, as they were called. And so they created this mechanism as a stopgap. They didn't think it would last. They expected Congress would choose presidents because under the system, if no one wins a majority in the Electoral College, the top three candidates go to Congress and Congress, three or four candidates in Congress, chooses. And they expected that would happen as it happened with Andrew Jackson and John Quincy Adams in 1824. It's a real problem, as I point out in the book, Arya, and as you pointed out, in the years after Appomattox in the 19th century, because repeatedly, 1876 being the worst of these examples, you have very close elections where the person who wins the popular vote does not necessarily win the electoral vote. Uh, the electoral votes are apportioned not by full population, but you get two automatically every state, and then they're apportioned with population, and that gives certain states an advantage where votes count more than elsewhere. So in Wyoming, where there are fewer people, they get a disproportionate number of electoral votes because they get the mandatory two plus one, and California and Texas are underrepresented today. That problem is the problem of the 19th century with states like New York, Louisiana, Florida, and others. And so you repeatedly, you have this system where the popular vote is not choosing the president, where it's unclear who the president is, where there's more dispute. In 1876, the dispute is over three states, South Carolina, Louisiana, and of course, Florida. It's always Florida. Because even though Tilden, Samuel Tilden from New York, has won more total votes in the country, those three states are so close. And there are questions of certification, all the things we've lived through. And that continues election after election. We have not changed the Electoral College because we have not had the will to change it. No one likes the Electoral College. No one thinks it's a good idea, and no one understands it. So it is about time, and I hope a new generation of Americans will push for this, that we basically have a constitutional amendment to get rid of the Electoral College and do what every major democracy does. It's called 
choose your president by popular vote. It's very simple. The French do this. It works quite well. The Indians do this. Whoever wins the most votes in the country should be the president of the United States, just as whoever wins the most votes in the state is the governor of the state. The Electoral College, it gives more influence to a bunch of white states. That's just the way to put it, right? So because of the way the electors are apportioned, because everyone gets three, at least two for your senators and at least one for your first member of the House, Wyoming has three electors. But Wyoming is so much smaller than California and Texas. Now, California and Texas get many, many more electors, but there are still, they don't make up for that difference in Wyoming getting three for a population that's less than one million. So if you look at it, if you look at the number of people who vote in, let's say, California and Wyoming individually, and then you look at the number of electors and you divide the number of total voters by the number of electors, a vote in Wyoming counts almost 90 times more than a vote in California. So it's violating the principle of one person, one vote, and it's giving disproportional influence to white states. The states that benefit from the Electoral College are states like Wyoming, the Dakotas, Montana, not the states that have large brown and black communities and Asian communities like Texas, California, and New York. It disproportionately harms them. And it also means there's a second problem because the system is set up in most states as a winner-take-all system that if it's a state like California that's largely Democrat or a state like Texas is largely Republican, the other side doesn't even bother to campaign because you don't get any credit for getting 40, 45% of the vote. If you win 50% plus one, you get all the electors. So that means that for the other side, the votes don't count. Rather, if we went to a system of popular vote where every vote in this country counted, it would still make sense for you as a Democrat to campaign in Texas, because even if you don't win the state, those votes help you with the national vote and vice versa for Republicans in California. So it totally distorts our system and it gives much more influence to these states with large white populations. And that's a real problem. Yeah, exactly. So I think one of the great things that I think readers can get from your book is not only do they see just how the history really plays out to get us to where we are today, but then also you bring all of this in the legacies part of your chapter with ways where you identify these ills in our democracy and just letting the readers think about how we could actually think about how we could reverse these ills. And so to also just kind of finalize that little last part of your book, if you could snap your fingers or if you had three wishes, how would you fix the system that I know that's a very big question, but... It's a huge question, but it's a great one. And I think it's important for all of us to think about this. We can't change a system if we don't have an idea of what we'd like to see it look like instead. And history helps us because it allows us to see our inheritances and how our inheritances don't match up with our values. Same thing we do in our families, right? We have practices in our families and things that don't match up with our values, and we respect those. But that's why each generation changes the way the family operates, we hope, right? (laughs) And so the three things I would do if I could, and I hope we will eventually do, I would create far more protections for voting, real voting protection, real voting rights, in the same way we have rights for free speech, and do everything possible to make it easier for people to vote. In fact, I would make voting mandatory. I would do what the Australians do, where you have to go and vote. You get fined if you don't vote. Now, when you go and vote, You can vote for none of the above. I don't think anyone should be forced to choose among bad choices. 
but you should have to vote in the same way everyone has to file a tax return. Everyone has to vote. And I would think that would get rid of all the problems of voter suppression. We get rid of all these other issues, right? Because then if you have to vote, the government has to help you to vote. So that's one thing I would do. Second, I would create required expert panels in every state to define the districts, the congressional districts and other districts every 10 years. And those panels would have the principle of creating the most competitive districts. I want as many 51, 49 and as diverse districts as possible. So I would do that. And then the third thing I would do is I would create limits on how much you can spend in campaigns to lower the barrier for people. It's ironic. I think a lot of the money that's spent in campaigns doesn't do anything. It doesn't change votes, but it keeps people out. If you can't, if you can't raise a lot of money, you can't run for office. And so that keeps a lot of the most qualified people. And I would do other things to try to encourage the most qualified people to run for office. I think people who are running for office should be paid better when they're in office. I think we should do things to make it more attractive for the most talented people to run for office. Because often I feel the people who are running for office are exactly the people who we should not have in office because they're running out of narcissism rather than out of a sense of public service. And so I would try to create more incentives for that. Brilliant. That's an amazing answer. And as we're wrapping up, is there anything else you would like to add? Well, I would like to say, first of all, how much I've enjoyed chatting with you about this, Aria. These have been terrific questions. And I just think these stories, it's not just the analysis that you really focused us on. The stories are so important for us because they're stories that resonate today. And we as historians are storytellers. The most powerful way to persuade people is to tell a story. And so I appreciate the opportunity to share my story with you, Aria, and all the other readers. Thank you. Thank you. It's been amazing chatting with you about this as well. So Aria, what do you want listeners to learn from this conversation? Well, Dr. Suri's book revealed all sorts of new atrocities committed by the Confederate rebels that I never learned about from my Civil War history class in high school. Suri's book taught me that their specific breed of so-called patriotism was hardly patriotic, as the Confederate exiles even conspired to overthrow the Union from Mexico. To me, Suri's book squashes any narrative of the Confederate cause, being replaced as one that advocates for general states' rights against a seeming federal tyranny. Instead, Suri calls out these Confederate ideals for what they really are a vision for democracy and society by white elites for white elites, and intolerance to any groups on those peripheries. Thank you for sharing, Aria. Our producer, Aria Barquesa, is a junior at London School of Economics and Political Science. Dr. Jeremy Surrey is the Mac Brown Distinguished Professor for Global Leadership, History, and Public Policy at the University of Texas at Austin. You can follow him on Twitter at Jeremy Surrey. That's J-E-R-E-M-I-S-U-R-I. We've included a link to his work in our show notes. Be sure to follow our podcast on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you decide to listen. That way, you'll never miss an episode. Next week, we ask, how do democracies die? There's large segments of the electorate still believing that the 2020 election was stolen, despite all evidence to the contrary. In a lot of ways, our democracy remains incredibly vulnerable. And the challenge for us is to think about why are we in this situation where each national election feels like a national emergency. If you like the show, tell your friends, students, professors, and maybe even drop a review or rate the show. We'd love to hear what you think. Our website is untextbook.org, and we're on social media at untextbook. 
Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton. Untextbook is produced in partnership with Pod People, Ann Foos, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Shirley Wong, Hannah Pedersen, Danielle Roth, Shanice Tyndall, and Michael Aquino. Fernanda Rain is our executive producer, and Cece Payne is our youth program coordinator and producer. Untextbook is a project of the History Collab, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet. Thanks for listening. <laughs>